You're listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church. All right. Very quickly, do this for me. If everyone would close your eyes, I want you to think about something. I want you to close your eyes and I want you to think about this. Ask yourself this question. You'd be surprised at how rarely we ask ourselves this question intentionally. But ask yourself this question. What is a good life? What is a good life? Have you ever taken a moment to define this for yourself? If you could fast forward to a moment when you're no longer here on this side of eternity and you could listen to a group of people talking about you, if one of them was to stand up and say that you were someone who lived a good life, then what statements would they use to support their argument? What proofs would you hope they were able to present? Now, I'm not talking about They're saying you're a good person, but that you lived a good life. What would make that life a good life? Would it be the length of your life, the quantity of years? Is quantity what makes a life good? Surely we all want to make a good run here, but I don't think any of us would say that we would trade 23 beautiful years for 103 miserable ones. Would it be a life of pleasure Would you say, I lived a good life if I spent every second of my life laying in a bed of silk sheets and having Michelin star meals spoon-fed to me thrice a day? Once a month, that would be nice. But I don't think anyone would call that a good life. Or would it be an easy life? Let's say I never had to do anything hard. I had no responsibility, no relationships to deal with and complicate things and I played video games 12 hours a day and never had to speak to any human that I didn't wish to see? What if I didn't have to walk anywhere and I never had to make a difficult decision about anything and I never suffered a loss because I didn't love anything or anyone enough to consider it a loss once it was gone? I'm sure we'd all like to do this for a season, but no one in this room would call that a good life. None of you would. So what is a good life? I want to think about this question. I want you to think about this question while I'm speaking today. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you what I want to talk about. Today's message is called A Ghost on the Water. Which, by the way, I did not plan to speak this message the day before Halloween. But I saw it on the calendar and I was like, all right. All right, I can pretend that I'm following a theme here. It'll make me look like I'm more intentional than I am. So this is unofficially a Halloween message. So it makes me look smarter if it was. But I didn't plan for it to be. It's just the way it happened. But this message is called A Ghost on the Water. And here's what I want to try and do. Number one, I am sorry, but I'm going to spoil a 20-year-old movie for you. If you have not seen this movie, you have had 20 years to watch this movie. And you ha- if you haven't, I'm real sorry. But if you're really dying to see this 20-year-old movie, then I'll give you a chance to leave and not spoil it for you. But you're going to miss a major point of the sermon if you do. 
So I'm going to spoil a 20-year-old movie for you. Secondly, I'm going to tell some stories from the life of Simon Peter. And then I'm going to give you some thoughts, things I think about him and his life. And then I'm going to ask you to answer this question again. What is a good life? And you know, I don't necessarily think your answer is going to change. But I think that's okay because church is not always or even often or normally about coming to learn something new. I think more than anything, it's about learning to articulate the things you knew were true all along. Together in the context of a community, right? So your answer may not change when I ask you again, what is a good life? Finally, I'm going to leave you with a prayer that might be super meaningful to you if it's not something like what you already pray on a regular basis. Who's ready to go? Okay. Well, before I get started, let me say this. Today I'm wrapping up a series called the Easy Burden Series. Uh, this week with a Halloween message. <laughs> um, it's called The Ghost on the Water. And um, okay, I already said all that, so I'm not going to say it again how I'm pretending that's a Halloween message. But next week, we're going to start a new series on gratitude, um, which I think is super appropriate leading into Thanksgiving, which we did do that one on purpose. The Thanksgiving and the month of gratitude. We, we are doing that on purpose. I'm excited about it, but also I've really enjoyed this series, uh, the Easy Burden series, and I hope you have too. So with that, let's stand up and read a couple scriptures together. A couple of scriptures and a quote, and we're going to start with the scripture that the series has been based on, Matthew eleven twenty eight. All right, it should be up on the screen. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I love that verse. I really, really do. All right, next let's read Matthew fourteen twenty six. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. I also love that scripture, and you're going to know why in a minute. All right, let's read 1 John four eighteen. Okay, I'm moving fast. I'm sorry. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Beautiful. This stuff is like really good. And like I have a number of friends. I... I'm not mad at them. You know, they're walking through some stuff. I had a number of friends that kind of want to walk away from scripture and traditional church. And I was like, I can't imagine growing up without this kind of stuff. Just say it. It's not a defense. It's just, it's really meaningful to me. And I think how you grow up without some of these ideas is, makes me sad to think that that happened. But, you know, it's the way I grew up. So the way I grew up is the best, right? Well, everyone else grew up is whatever, but you know. All right. This next one is a quote. It's not scripture. Life is never made unbearable by circumstances, but only by lack of meaning and purpose. 
This is from Viktor Frankl, who's a Jewish psychologist and Holocaust survivor. I feel like it's hard for anyone else to say that, but when a Holocaust survivor says that, it matters and it means something, right? Life is never made unbearable by circumstances, but only by lack of meaning and purpose. If one of my buddies was sad and I said that to him, he would not listen. But if Viktor Frankl said it to him, he better pay attention. This is the last one. John 10.10. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The word abundantly. Underline that in your brain. Highlight it on your phone. All right. Thank you, guys. That's a lot of stuff to read together, but... All right, so I'm actually going to start at the end. I'm going to start here in John 21. Um, I'm going to do a lot of reading today. I don't necessarily love doing a lot of reading. I just feel like it's real important to what I'm trying to say. So you might have to listen to me read. But let's jump into John 21. You don't read it with me. I'll just read it to you. Otherwise, we're going to be reading a lot. All right. John 21, 4. This is a beautiful story. I love this story so much. Just as day was breaking. Imagine it. Just as day was breaking. Jesus stood on the shore. Now, this is after Jesus has died and been resurrected and ascended. Jesus is gone. Right? But just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, this is in John and that's how he always relates to himself in his book. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And I love this part. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment. You know, they're working real hard, right? Sweating and whatnot. So he put on his, I guess they'd taken off their cloak or whatever. He put on his garment. Uh, He put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. I love this. And this always touches me. That when Peter saw that it was Jesus, he, he didn't wait. Now, a hundred yards away, that's a long way away. He jumped out of the boat and swam all the way to the shore. And there's just, you know, we can't know exactly why Peter did what he did. But there's a lot of imagery here, right? And I immediately think, you know, there's a lot of um, things that happen in literature in general, but especially in scripture where things happen multiple times. So whenever something happens multiple times, there's a reason for it, right? 
What is the first thing you think of when you think of Peter most of the time? Peter was the one who stepped out of the boat and tried to walk on the water, right? And so I don't know what Peter was thinking, but when he saw Jesus on the shore, this person that he loved very much, that he spent a lot of life with, this person that he walked through a lot of pain and grief with, this this savior, this this person that meant the world to Peter when he saw or heard that it might be Jesus. I mean, a hundred yards away, I don't know how good your eyes are, but a hundred yards away, I wonder if Peter thought he was going to jump out and walk on the water all the way to the shore. I don't think it mattered though. But it's a beautiful picture of Peter jumping out of the boat and swimming to the shore. To me, this particular story sums up Peter in such a beautiful way. And we're going to look at him a little bit closer as we continue. But first, as I promised, I'm going to spoil a 20-year-old movie for you right now. So most people who have seen this movie either hate it or love it. It got very, very average reviews when it came out. I personally love this movie. So when I bring this movie up, you're either going to be excited or you're going to be annoyed. But the movie is The Village by M. Night Shyamalan. The Village. Raise your hand if you loved The Village. Raise your hand if you hated The Village. All right, all right. It really doesn't matter if you loved it or hated it. It's not, it's not, um, I love a lot of things that I promise you guys hate. So, but, uh, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna spoil this. It has a, uh, it has a twist at the end. That's why I say spoil, but the twist is very important to what I'm trying to talk to you about today. So who's ready to have this movie ruined for you? All right, well, you, you've had a moment to leave the room if you really want to watch The Village. You can go home and watch The Village and then listen to the, um, the podcast. Here we go. The Village. Residents of a small, isolated 19th century Pennsylvania village of Covington live in fear of those we don't speak of. They're na- the nameless humanoid creatures living in the surrounding woods. The villagers have constructed a large barrier of oil lanterns and watchtowers that are constantly staffed. After the funeral of a child, the village elders deny Lucius Hunt's request for permission to pass through the woods to get medical supplies from the towns. So they're in this isolated town. They're isolated because these monsters live out in the woods. And Lucius, who is also Johnny Cash and the Joker... One of my favorite actors wants to go into the woods and brave the monsters so that he can bring back medicine from the towns. Because this young person, this boy or girl has died because they didn't have the medicine that they that could have saved them from the towns. But elders deny Lucius Hunt's request for permission to pass through the woods to get medical supplies from the towns. Later, his mother, Alice, scolds him for wanting to visit the towns, which the villagers describe as wicked. I can't remember, but I think his mom is Sigourney Weaver. I don't know. doesn't matter. If you're not a fan of the Aliens movies, you don't care. Later, his mother, Alice, scolds him. The elders also appear to have secrets. Imagine that. The elders have secrets. Keeping 
physical mementos hidden in black boxes, supposedly reminders of the evil and tragedy in the towns they left behind. After Lucius makes an unsanctioned venture into the woods, the creatures leave warnings in the form of splashes of red paint on all the villagers' doors. So the monsters have agreed to stay in the woods as long as you obey them, but if you start messing with the monsters, then they start to come into the town. And they're terrifying. They come in and they leave this red on people's doors. And people are terrified. Well, Ivy Elizabeth Walker, the blind daughter of Chief Elder Edward Walker, informs Lucius that she has strong feelings for him and he returns her affections. They arrange to be married. But Noah Percy, a young man with an apparent developmental disability, stabs Lucius with a knife because he's in love with Ivy himself. So Noah is locked in a room while a decision awaits regarding his fate. Well, Edward goes against the wishes of the other elders, agreeing to let Ivy pass through the forest and seek medicine for Lucius. Before she leaves, Edward explains that the creatures inhabiting the woods are actually members of their own community wearing costumes and have continued the legend of monsters in an effort to frighten and deter others from attempting to leave. Two young men are sent to accompany Ivy into the forest, but they abandon her almost immediately, fearful of the creatures. While traveling through the forest, one of the creatures attacks Ivy. She tricks it into falling into a deep hole to its death. The creature is actually Noah wearing one of the costumes, which he discovered under the floorboards of the room where he had been confined after stabbing Lucius. So as she travels through the woods, Ivy's parents unlock a box and look at photographs of the elders outside a counseling center revealing that it is the early 21st century instead of the 19th century. After she climbs over the wall at the woods edge, Ivy encounters a park ranger driving a patrol car who is shocked to hear that she's come out of the woods. Ivy gives the ranger a list of medicines that she must acquire. The ranger talks to his boss, not mentioning his encounter with Ivy. The village was founded in the late 1970s by Edward Walker, then a professor of American history at the University of Pennsylvania. Recruiting people he met at a grief counseling clinic, they joined in creating a place where they would live and be protected from any aspect of the outside world. Edward's family fortune purchased a wildlife preserve. They built Covington. I'm getting to the end, I promise. They built Covington in the middle, funding Ranger Corps to make sure no one got in and even paid off the government to make it a no-fly zone. The park ranger retrieves the requested medicine from the ranger station and Ivy returns to the village unaware of the truth of the situation. During her absence, the elders secretly open their black boxes, each containing mementos from their lives in the outside world, including items related to their past traumas as violent crime victims. They gather around Lucius's bed when they hear that Ivy has returned and that she killed one of the monsters. Edward points out to Noah's grieving mother that his death will allow them to continue deceiving the rest of the villagers that there are creatures in the woods. What they didn't mention here is that Ivy was also blind. And that's why she could 
jump the wall and meet the ranger and not really understand what was going on. But do you understand they built this safe place because the outside world had hurt them. And they built this safe place in order to keep everyone safe. They created this story of monsters in the woods to keep them from leaving and discovering the world they actually lived in. Here are a few thoughts. Number one, there was no monster in the woods. The monster was a story the elders created to keep their people from the outside world. Number two, for a season, this story actually kept them safe. But for a while, but excuse me, but while the fear could keep them safe from the dangers on the outside, it couldn't protect them from the dangers on the inside. Not only, number three, not only could the fear not protect them from the dangers on the inside, eventually it prevented them from having the medicines or the things they needed to save their own people. So the elders set up these walls and created the story because they were hurt. But the system they created was now hurting their people. My other thought is Ivy is such a great name for Bryce Dallas Howard's character because she is the one who goes over the wall. She overcomes the fear. And why does she overcome her fear? She overcomes her fear because of love. She loves Lucius. Lucius's name means light. She's blind, but he is what? She's blind, but he is her light. And his life is what calls her to walk out into the darkness of the unknown. What does the Bible say? Perfect love casts out fear. I love this movie. Some people hate it. Some people wanted the monsters to be real and didn't want the outside world to just be like normal life. But have you ever noticed that when we've been hurt, we tend to buy into ideas, stories, or systems that might keep us from getting hurt again in the same way? Have you ever noticed that? I mean, this isn't pleasant. This is heavy stuff, but we're in church and we talk about heavy stuff in church. We can be like... You know, kiddie pool all week long, but church, like, we kind of got to jump in. There's really no other way to do it. But over time, these stories can become oppressive. These stories can isolate us from reality and keep us from what we need. These stories can keep us from becoming who we need to be for the people we love. And there often comes a time in your life when in order to truly love someone or something, you are going to have, you are going to be asked to walk directly into your fears and climb over the walls of the prison you built to protect yourself. You are going to have to take a risk. Like I said, not in the kiddie pool. The scripture says that perfect love casts out fear. And maybe that doesn't mean that you won't feel afraid. But when you love something enough, you can be propelled through anything. My buddy Victor Frankel again. If you find a way, then you can bear anyhow. And he's quoting Nietzsche, but I quote Victor because people don't like it when you quote Nietzsche in church. And Victor and Nietzsche would disagree on a lot of things. But apparently Victor, once again, Jewish Holocaust survivor, agreed with him on this one point. 
If you find a way, then you can bear any how. My dad tells this awesome story. Was it your grandmother, dad, who had to cross the Cooper River Bridge? Yes. I don't know if any of you guys remember. Who's, Charleston is a lovely city. Who spent a little bit of time in Charleston? Well, back in the day, if you, the only way to get to Mount Pleasant is you had to drive into Charleston. Then you had to take the Cooper River Bridge over to Mount Pleasant. And now there's this big, like, beautiful bridge, which is like seven times wider than this room. But the Cooper River Bridge, and it still existed in the late 90s and the early 2000s when I lived there for about six months. And they built another one so that one went one way and one went the other. But when my dad was a baby, my, my great-grandmother had to cross a bridge that was probably not much wider than this row of seats right here. All the way over it. And it was scary even in the late 90s when they had had another one. It was two lanes. I can't imagine what it was like back in the early 1900s. The mid-1900s. But my my dad has a brother. And my great-grandmother used to say... Those two boys are the only thing that would get me across that bridge. I guarantee she felt the feelings of fear. But she was not going to miss out on her grandbabies because she loved them. And so when we say perfect love casts out fear, it doesn't mean you're not going to feel afraid. And the whole message isn't really a whole message about fear, but if I was going to make a couple comments here, like I feel afraid all the time. Anytime I'm about to do something that's exciting, like it's terrifying. I remember flying with my band to South America for the first time. And here I'm flying to promoters I'd never met. I'm taking a whole group of people. I'm supposed to pay them. We're supposed to show up and do things. The people bringing me in don't speak English very well. I don't speak Portuguese at all. And I realize I have no idea what I'm flying into. Zero idea. And I told my, and I started to freak out for a minute. And I told myself, all right, you have five minutes to lose it. And then you're going to go down there and you're going to do your job because this is what you were born to do. And so every now and then I feel that. And I tell myself, you know, you got five minutes to lose it, and then you're going to get up and go do this because this is who you are, and this is what you're called to do. But the Cooper River Bridge. All right, let's shift gears. If you would, turn to Matthew 14. Just because, just a side prop, a little, little side here while I'm looking for Matthew 14. Um, it's interesting to me how many fears are like totally bogus. Some are not. Let's just be honest. But like most of the ones we're super terrified of are like almost 100% like illegitimate. I'll give you an example. I'm a little bit afraid of sharks. Like when I go out swimming in the ocean, sometimes when I swim in a lake, I'm like, there could be a shark here. Like I'm for real. I did a study not long ago. You know, the odds of, of die, I mean, people get bit occasionally by sharks. The odds of dying from a shark attack are so low. You have greater odds of falling in a hole in the sand and dying. You have greater odds of dying in the bathtub. You have greater odds of dying by getting hit 
with a champagne cork than dying from a shark attack. Un- unprovoked shark attack. Some people are stupid. They don't count. Dying from an unprovoked shark attack. You're more in danger from getting hit in the head with a champagne cork. These are real statistics from the real internet that I really looked up on my real phone. Let's shift gears. Matthew 14. All right. This is the like Peter story, right? 1423. Also, here's what's really interesting. So remember uh, probably a month, maybe a couple months ago, I spoke on when Jesus um, multiplied the bread and the fish. And remember, Jesus was out in the, in the countryside and the people followed him. And that's why there was no food is because they were out in the middle of nowhere. Well, Jesus was out in the middle of nowhere for two reasons. One is because um, his, his, really, his cousin was murdered. And I imagine he was, if he wasn't sad, he was definitely like working through his cousin being murdered. But also the person who murdered his cousin was also talking about Jesus now. And it came back to him. So I I feel like he and the disciples got away just to like collect. But Jesus and the disciples are going through a hard time, right? So Jesus goes out to be alone and all these people follow him. And then they're hungry. So he turns, he multiplies the fish and the bread to feed them because they have nowhere to go and they're going to be hungry. So after he does that, he's like, all right, disciples, I'm sending you out on a boat across the water. I wonder if this was like a kind of a, a trick. Like maybe all the people will follow you guys and then I'm going to go up on the mountain and pray by myself because I really need some self-care time. And John the Baptist has been beheaded. My cousin has been beheaded and they're talking about me. I got things to do. I got to figure some stuff. So Jesus is going to go pray on the mountain and he sends the disciples across the water. So that's the context. So they're kind of in a, <laughs> they're in a rough state to begin with. All right. Let's not pretend that these people don't have real feelings. You know, I'm sure that the disciples are, they're really losing their minds. They're like, I've been following this guy around for like a year and a half, two years. And now like the government is killing people and they just killed his cousin. And like, what are we doing? Like, what, what are we doing? This is the, this is where they're at, right? When, when, when they're, uh, decided to cross the water. So they're out on the water. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him. To the other side. So they're going without Jesus and Jesus told them so. That's a picture right there. You ever feel like Jesus has sent you out? He told you to do something. He's like, we're going to do this. And then he sends you out by yourself and you're like, yeah, I felt that way. All right. So he sent them to go before him on the other side while he dismissed the crowds. Remember, he just fed them. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When the evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. I don't know much about boating, but they didn't have a motor. I don't know how that works. They're going into the wind without a motor. That's another great picture picture right there. My life feels like that sometimes. They're beaten by the waves for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, I don't know when that is, but it's very poetic sounding. I should use that in a song. In the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. This is a, 
grown men, fishermen, crying out in fear. It's fantastic. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. So I want to say something here real quick. I know, I can't remember who said how many times do not fear is in scripture. It's in scripture a lot. But almost every instance I can think of, they're not telling people to not be afraid of what's happening. It's usually God telling people to not be afraid of him. But Jesus said, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And he began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out, reached out his hand and took hold of him saying, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased and those in the boat worshiped him saying, truly, you are the son of God. This is a classic story. I love this story, right? This is sort of like one of the iconic Christian stories. There are lots of paintings and things of this story. This is in all the children's books and it's, it's wonderful. I love this. To me though, this episode foreshadows Peter's whole life story. Peter is a fisherman who is drawn away from the boat. If you're a fisherman, a boat is your place of familiarity and comfort. At first, Peter walks on the water, success. But then he falls and sinks into the water. Failure. Then Jesus pulls him back up. So he succeeds, then he fails. But here's the thing. None of the others even tried. None of the others even tried. As I was reading this, preparing for this message, I noticed something that I thought was really funny. Do you notice it wasn't Jesus's idea for Peter to leave the boat? Like, what if Jesus really was a ghost? And Peter says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come out on the water. So if it was the ghost, he just said, all right, Peter, come. It was Peter's idea in the first place. It's, but to me, this is Peter. This is like, this is the foreshadowing of his entire life. And I could read a bunch of this stuff. I'm trying to decide how much time I have. My watch doesn't work. It's really just a, um, a, I need to put a battery in. It really just looks cool. But I'm going to try not to go over by too much. Is that correct down there? Okay, but, you know, Peter is, um, in Matthew 16, Peter has this interchange with Jesus where Jesus asked Peter, you know, who do they say that I am? Then he asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, uh, Peter says, you're the son of God. So Peter may be the first person in recorded history to confess that Jesus is the Messiah. So here's Peter walking on the water, spiritually speaking. A few moments later, Peter and Jesus get into an argument. And, and Jesus, who just told Peter, and when Jesus, when Peter is the first person on record to confess that Jesus is the son of God, Jesus says, I will build my church on this rock and points to Peter. Peter's name means rock, right? I bet Peter felt pretty awesome. Then Peter and Jesus got into an argument and Jesus literally told the rock that he's going to build the church on, get behind me, Satan. 
So there's Peter walking on the water and then Peter sinking again. In John 18, after Jesus was deceived by Judas and the, the people came to get him and haul Jesus away, um, Peter grabs a sword and cuts a guy's ear off. Cuts a guy's ear off. And Jesus picks the ear up and puts it back on. It's like, Peter. That's Peter sinking. And then earlier, when Jesus is explaining to Peter and the others that he's going to be taken away and he's going to suffer, you know, Peter's like, there's no way I'm going to let this happen. There's no way I'm going to let this happen. But then when it does happen, what does Peter do? I imagine it's all kind of going on and they're dragging Jesus around. Like, think about it. I don't, they didn't have, I don't know if they, they, they obviously didn't have like, you know, those like police trucks, you know, they do in the movies where they throw you in the back and shut the door and lock you in. Like, so imagine they're dragging him around or hauling him around and people are kind of following. You know, and I imagine Peter and the group are all sort of following around. At one point, someone comes up to Peter and says, aren't you with him? Aren't you one of those? In fact, didn't you cut a guy's ear off? Aren't you the guy? Like, cut the guy. And Peter says, no, that's not me. And it happens three times. And the third time it says that Peter denied Jesus with oaths and curses. Oaths and curses. This breaks my heart. To be honest, I don't fault Peter. Um, because to, to know what was going on, can you imagine being in that situation? I mean, the brutal things that they did to people and what they did to Jesus. Can you imagine? I don't fault him, but what breaks my heart is like, I wonder how close he was in proximity to Jesus when he denied him with oaths and curses. Can you imagine what it would be like to be Jesus or, or Mary, Jesus' mother, watching her son be just tortured and beaten and murdered and and his best friend is denying that he even knows him. And he's using cuss words and foul language. So that brings us back to where I started in John 21. Peter has not been able to have a conversation with Jesus since this happened. So I really don't know why Peter jumped off the boat and swam to Jesus. But I wonder. I wonder if it was gnawing at him, if it bothered him, the things that he said. If he just wanted to get there fast enough to have that conversation. And Jesus is like, yo, eat breakfast. (laughs) And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, (laughs) because remember Peter had said, all these other disciples, they'll run away, but not me. And then he's the one who used foul language to deny that he even knew Jesus. But when they finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these guys? 
You said that you did. He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my sheep. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you really love me more than all of these others? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, feed my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And then Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And then Jesus said, follow me. You know, we get all mixed up. We, like Peter, we walk and we fall and we sink, right? But I love what Jesus said to Peter. He's obviously like, remember Peter said to Jesus, all these others will deny you, but not me. And then Peter was the one who denied him. And then Jesus, their first conversation is like, you love me more than all them? You love me more than those guys? Peter's like, I I love you, okay? Okay, I love you, all right? Fine. But you know, I love that this is Jesus' answer. Well, feed my sheep. Have you been a big success, Peter? Well, feed my sheep. Have you been a big failure? Well, feed my sheep. Have you been afraid? Well, feed my sheep. Have you been brave? Well, feed my sheep. Did you get the answer correct? Well, feed my sheep. Did you get it wrong? Well, feed my sheep. Did you cut a man's ear off? Well, feed my sheep. Did you deny me with foul language and cuss words? Well, feed my sheep. Do you love me more than everyone else? Feed my sheep. And see, Peter, in his life, he really did get out of the boat. Peter is the getter-outer of the boater person. (laughs) Even though he does it wrong sometimes, he's the get-out-of-the-boat person. And he got out of the boat in ways that I guarantee he never could have imagined. Because this uneducated fisherman left the comfort of his fishing boat, the comfort of his country, the comfort... Of his people. And he. Excuse me. I always get emotional. I'm 6'4". I'll still kick you in the neck. (laughs) He left the comfort of his people. But he was the one who took the gospel to the outside world. Peter introduced Jesus to the Gentiles. Well introduced the Gentiles to Jesus. Which includes most of us here in this room. The early Christians didn't consider that Christianity could even be had by non-Jews. Peter was the first to have the revelation that Jesus could even belong to people who weren't of Abraham's bloodline. And in the end, he also gave his own life. History tells us that Peter was crucified in Rome. See, Jesus gave his life so that we could know God, but Peter gave his life so that we could know Jesus. Feed my sheep. And here's what's really interesting. I'm not deep in Christian history the way I would like to be. But tomorrow is a day called Halloween. And the word Halloween comes from a Christian holiday called All Hallows' Eve. 
which is, I believe, the night before All Saints Day. And on Saint, All Saints Day is where people remember the great women and men who went before us, who did great things. People like Peter. Peter is not Jesus. I'm not, we're not, I'm not worshiping Peter like Jesus. But it is so meaningful to me to see the life of a person like Peter. Why? Because the story of Peter is like my story. It's like the story of all of us. Jesus often finds us in a comfortable place, a walled-in garden, a fishing boat, a job, a relationship, an old hurt, an old mindset. And at some point, the wind and the waves begin to stir. And in these moments, we often have a choice to make. You can continue to languish away in our safe, comfortable, familiar place or set off for a place of greater meaning. No doubt we will sink sometimes. We at times will absolutely fail. There is no way around that fact. But through our fears and failures, there's a promise of new possibilities on the other side. Maybe you have a dream in your heart and it's time to step out. Or maybe you've been chasing a dream, but now it's time to let it go. But wherever you find yourself, there will come a time when the wind and the waves are going to pound your safe place. And the worst part of it is they will steal your joy, your purpose, and your meaning. And you will look out onto your yet unlived life and be tempted to be afraid. But you may also find that in that fear, there is an opportunity, an opportunity to hear the still, small voice of Jesus. And Jesus is saying, feed my sheep. Give sustenance to the people in your life. Give them something to believe in. Give them something to do. Give them someone to love. Give them something to live for. Show them what it means to live a good life, even and especially in the face of adversity. Model for them what it means to find joy, not avoid pain, but to find real joy, even in desolate places. Take up your cross and show them. Show them, excuse me, show them what it means to carry a worthy burden. Show them what it means to carry a worthy burden. Use whatever time you have on this earth to show them what it means to really, truly, and deeply love. Sorry, I'm kind of messed up here today. I wasn't going to subject you to that sound. But I think the voice of Jesus is always there. And he's always saying, if you're willing to listen, feed my sheep, Peter. Come and follow me. So I want to end with a question and a prayer. And the question is the question I ask you from the beginning. What in your definition is a good life? When you're gone and people look back and say, you lived a good life, what evidence will they use to support that claim? What will they say about you? And here is the prayer. And it's the prayer of Peter. It's the prayer that was Peter's idea. Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. If you would, stand up. And close your eyes. 
And this is the beauty. You don't, you don't have to face all your dragons at once for the love of God. You get to walk through all this stuff with the Lord and with your community, with the people you love. Maybe with a therapist. It's not a terrible idea. But if you're willing to pray this, repeat after me. Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you. Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you. So these days when I'm in that uh, five minutes of losing it, these days when I'm terrified about something that I got to go do, I take those five minutes and in one way or another, that's what I say. Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you. Because if it's you, I know that I can do it. Even if I fail, I know that you can do it through me. Thank you, guys. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.